Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster. The show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high performance mind, body and lifestyle. I'm really excited to share this conversation with Dr. Andrew Hill, founder of the Peak Brain Institute. In this episode, we talk about how to optimize your brain for high performance, covering a range of topics from accessing different brainwave states to curing conditions such as ADHD and PTSD, and also importantly for many people, insomnia or other sleep issues. In this episode, Dr. Hill explains how to use QEEG and neurofeedback to cure these problems within three to four months without taking any medication. Dr. Hill explains why blue light in the morning within within an hour of sunrise is so key to aligning your circadian rhythm and why the timing of eating and not light in the evening may be the most important consideration for aligning your circadian rhythm. And we also discuss how you can optimize the release of growth hormone in the early hours of sleep. Dr. Hill also shares the do's and don'ts of optimizing your brain and his top three things for a healthy, high performing brain. I think you're going to really enjoy our conversation and gain lots of insights and takeaways that you can use immediately to upgrade your performance. If you enjoy this interview, please review, like and share it to help us get the message out there. And if you have any feedback, I'd love to hear it. Please send it to Angela at AngelaFosterPerformance.com. I read all of the emails and I will personally get back to you. Enjoy the show. So I'm here with Dr. Andrew Hill. I'm so excited. We met uh, Friday night at the London Health Optimization Summit we dinner. We did. We did. It was um, a lovely dinner. It was a lovely yeah. dinner. You made it bearable. It was kind of a loud, crazy room with all these wild biohackers. And I had a great conversation with you. So thank you for keeping me a little occupied thank in that you. chaos. I had a really, really fun evening. And I was absolutely fascinated by what you do. I still am. And just have so many questions. Um, so can you just explain briefly for the listeners what you do in terms of neurofeedback? Sure. So I am a uh, brain scientist who works on brain optimization, essentially. You can sort of think of me as a functional neuroscientist, trying to find the causes of your bottlenecks in performance. So the area I work in is called neurofeedback or biofeedback in the brain. And I typically work with what's called EEG or brain waves. And so to do this work, we'd measure your brain. Uh, we're sitting here in one of our one of our locations, and I have some uh, swim cap type devices here. You put one of those on your head, squirt it full of gel, and measure your resting brain activity for several minutes, and then compare it to a database and see how unusual your brain is compared to the average person your age. And then from that data, we try to find if any of the unusual things are likely bottlenecks. Because I'm seeing you against the population, I don't know what's right or wrong, and it's unusual. I'll say, oh, hey, this pattern shows up sometimes. People can't fall asleep, or have some anxiety, or have some ADHD. And together we go through all the brain assessment data and try to figure out which of the things showing up that are unusual are related to bottlenecks you care about. Interesting. So just so people can imagine this, yeah. um, it's kind of like electrodes that you would do similar to an ECG, mm-hmm. but actually they're going on the head. Yeah, the, there's two parts of the process. There's the brain mapping or the quantitative EEG, and then there's the brain training or the neurofeedback. Okay. The brain mapping is basically like a lycra swim cap, with little tiny electrodes embedded all over the cap in 21 locations. Mm-hmm. We squirt gel through that cap and pick up electricity being generated by your brain at all those locations. And you just kind of sit still and it's kind of annoying and wet and sticky. Um, and then um, a few times a week, you would come in and just stick some wires to your ears and one wire on top of your head in the place you might want to measure the brain. And then you measure what the brain is doing moment to moment under that wire. 
And whenever the brain happens to shift briefly on its own in the right direction, you sort of applaud it with audio and visual feedback. So it's involuntary exercise. Your brain's always changing. So when it does the right thing, we go, yes, brain, good job, with audio and visuals. When it does something else, we withhold the feedback. The brain starts to notice that whenever it does something specific, stuff happens in the outside world. And it likes stuff. If given the option of input or no input, it'll choose input every time. So if we only applaud some of the things the brain is doing, it starts to do more and more of those things, trying to figure out how to get more feedback. And then tomorrow, you'll feel a tiny bit different based on what got pushed up today. And so you sort of spot the effect like you were in the gym and go, oh, I felt the muscle move or I felt the well, soreness tomorrow or something. So you get to your, your resources of sleep, stress, mood, attention, cognition, etc. get exercised very gently and you notice subjectively shifts in how you're feeling and it's very iterative, like personal training for the brain. Try something, see how that feels, build up more workouts, you know, chase more goals, lay some foundation, go after more advanced things. And then we map your brain again every 20 sessions of neurofeedback and typically get very large changes every 20 sessions. So uh, most of my clients will do about 40 or 50 half hour sessions in three or four months. And I can almost always get rid of ADHD, for instance, in that time frame, or drop seizures by 50%, or pull the teeth of PTSD almost completely, or make OCD much more under your control. So it's not so much fixing individual problems, it's really going after whatever resources you think you want more of, or to unstick, you know, if they're a bit stuck mm -hmm. on, like an anxiety. Um, but people become really in charge of their own brain performance, kind of like you would if you walked into a gym and said, I want abs. Okay, you can get abs. Here's the program. We'll work you through that. It might be a different program if you're you know, already the Olympic athlete who walked in the gym or if you're the guy who wheezed up two stairs and wants abs. The process is different getting you to your own optimal goals. But it's always this heavily individualized process of figuring out where the resources are in your brain that might be the bottom like you care about, exercising them and seeing how you feel from that exercise, the biofeedback. And then over time, we can sort of demonstrate the big physiological shifts. We do um, both brain mapping and attention testing to gauge where your resources are. Okay. And so we measure how well you can click on some things and not click on others in the attention test. And it really reliably picks up brain injuries and ADHD features and executive function testing. So are both of those done in the initial they analysis? Are. They yeah. are. Yeah, we do three things, Joey, in the initial 90-minute uh, visit. You come in for the first time. We do half an hour of this computerized attention test, which by design is tedious and boring. Okay. Um, essentially, we flash a number on the screen that's about two inches tall, or we speak a number over the speakers. The number's either a one or a two. That's it. And it does one number per second for more than 20 minutes. And your job is to click on the ones and ignore the twos. So it's going one. Okay. One. Does it get quicker? Two. No. <laughs> one. Just again and again for 20 minutes. Right. Okay. And so you start missing the ones, which are inattentive events, or clicking on the twos, which are impulsive events. And you figure out if it's auditory or visual, short-term errors, long-term errors, trends in the errors. You tease apart all the ways in which your executive function may fall over a little bit. And that's the performance, if you will, assessment. And the brain maps are instead this sort of physiological assessment, this high-level set of resources, kind of like measuring you know, how strong you are or how tall you are or something. Things that can change but don't change very rapidly. And the two things, performance and brain, will kind of give us a nice framing of what it is you might want to work on. And we go over all your brain data with you and figure out, hey, are these bottlenecks things you care about? Are they valid? Do you want to work on them? 
And Interesting. you get to get the sense of, oh, my brain's doing X, Y, and Z, and, and get a better self of, sense of self and agency. And some of these things you go after and change with neurofeedback, but you can also see things that you can change with behavioral interventions. Like, let's say I looked at your brain and found that compared to the average person your age, your delta waves were running really, really fast, your alpha waves really, really slow. Mm-hmm. I, would, I would say, oh, this can show up sometimes when you aren't getting good deep sleep at night, and then you're tired and having a little speed of processing issues and word finding issues in the afternoon. If you're like, oh, hey, that sounds valid. It sounds like I'm experiencing. Then I believe these things are relevant to what you care about. Because it marries up what you're seeing mm-hmm. with what the client is saying. So it's like a diagnostic process. There's mm-hmm. really three stages. One, here's what's unusual statistically. That's valid. Two, is it relevant? Does it sound like it actually matches what you're experiencing? And three, do you care? Do you mm-hmm. want to work on it? Is this something you should go after as a goal? And so there's parts two and parts three of the client making meaning of it, not me. I'm your pocket scientist to demystify data, help you understand what could be true, but I'm not going to give you the answer. I mean, I joke now that hire a doctor and they give you answers. Hire a scientist. We give you questions. My job is mostly to tell you what I don't know and to keep asking you questions. So I teach you to read your own brain data and I'll say things like, oh, hey, here's a marker, the ratio of theta brain waves to beta brain waves, let's say. When that ratio is high, um, 94% of the time it's an ADHD brain. Okay. So if I see a high theta-beta ratio, I feel like, oh, hey, this pattern usually shows up and means impulsivity and distractibility. We see that in the brain. We kind of see that in the attention test. Do you struggle with some, some attention difficulty? If you're like, oh, yeah, that sounds right. Okay. Do you want to get rid of it? Do you want to work on that? Because these are really easy things to change. We usually get multiple standard deviations of change in a few months with the ADHD. Which is absolutely incredible. It's so powerful. And, and permanent change. Permanent change, yeah. Because yeah. there were two things I wanted to mention there that you, when we were talking before, is mm. that one is you're never going to take away, there's no downside to doing this from what you were saying. You don't take anything away. All you're doing is it's kind of additive. So if someone's got a really fast processing speed, mm, mm. they may struggle with ADHD, but they're still going to be a really quick thinker. Right. They can just concentrate better. Well, the, the ADHD example is great because, you know, everyone knows a few ADHD teenagers have been sitting playing a video game for 27 hours straight with no break, but mm-hmm. can't sit in a classroom for 27 minutes without being disruptive. And why is that? Because is Yes, they're bored, but they're relying on the environment to cue which mode their brain is in if you're ADHD. So the ADHD person in a high stimulus environment is actually more focused than average. Mm -hmm. In a low stimulus environment, they can't find that self-control. The average person can't hyper-focus nor hyper-distract, but they can choose which mode they're in much more readily. So in ADHD with neurofeedback, after several weeks of training, the kid who had to play video games or had to be in a fight or had to be disruptive can shift gears in high stimulus and you know, put the video game down, come to dinner without arguing. And then when they're bored in the classroom, can decide to focus and find the same degree of focus they would find if they were playing their big video game at home all night. Now, this is really interesting for me because as a parent, and I think for all the parents listening, they'll mm. be fascinated by this. Um, I know that my 10-year-old was playing, he isn't at the moment, was playing quite a bit of Fortnite. Mm-hmm. We had to restrict it. Mm-hmm. From what you're saying, would it be fair to say that in a way that brain, that, that game, sorry, is training his brain to respond in a certain way? Because he kept it's looking for that stimulus. probably the other way around. It's probably that his brain really wants high stimulus and he's found this is a reliable way to get it. Let me give you an even, even basic, more basic example. ADHD kids train their parents to yell at them. Conflict is a high stimulus state. So they're looking for stimulation. Psychologically, not enjoying yelling at him. But he's learned that when you're yelling at him, his frontal lobe lights up in a way that is very similar to being in a fight 
playing a video game or having to choose from competing in things in the environment. So typically ADHD kids will learn almost subconsciously to push parents' buttons and create lots of conflict because when things are intense, they feel clear and on and alert and checked in. It's interesting. Whereas, but, but then he went through this phase mm. and now what he's doing is playing Minecraft because that's what his friendship group do. Okay. And now everything's relaxed. He can come off the game easily. He can mm -hmm. concentrate at dinner because it's not fighting. And yeah. it's not, I think that's why so many parents were kind of like, you've got to come on Fortnite, you've got to come on Fortnite. Mm -hmm. So that's why I wonder, but it, it sounds like, so his brain was responding, but also wanting more of that high state. Yeah, yeah. and it's a, it's dopamine. It's, it's, it's rewarding yes. to have stimulus come in and you can get sucked into that, but it's not going to produce any problem in his brain It's not. Fortnite, no. So is it addictive, this it's not dopamine addictive. Not really. stimulation? Not really, no. Addiction, there's nothing special about addiction. Addiction's just learning. Because my concern was, and I think a lot yeah. of parents is, if you're stimulating dopamine receptors in that way, yeah. are you then predisposing that? I mean, seemingly not, because he's now come off it easily, mm -hmm. it's much calmer, mm -hmm. and he's just changed tack. Um, but are you then, could you could you have a child that, say, played so much video games that then they were predisposed to gambling or drug or alcohol addiction later? Probably not. Probably the other way around. The kid that was the kid who couldn't get off video games was the kid already who's going to be at risk for alcoholism and... Because they could, they had the kind of they had the kind of brain that tends to seek those things. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Okay, so it's like the other way around. A little bit, yeah, but it doesn't video games don't really change the brain for the negative. You know, it produces bad behavioral habits. If your kid always watching TV or playing video games mm. and want to manage their time, that's a broad human skill you have to learn, anyways. But that's I mean, for mother or parent, a parent of a kid, you have to sort of pick your battles, mm. right? You can't correct every little behavior, and kids have to learn to self. Regulate as well. Yeah, it sounds like yeah. he is better self-regulating playing Minecraft than Fortnite. Minecraft's kind of special. I see a lot of kids playing Minecraft getting very specific benefits from it because it's a very social kind of narrative thing mm -hmm. without eye contact. So a lot of my clients who are Asperger's or autistic will play Minecraft all day long because they have the social contact of people speaking about the game on the, the networked Minecraft servers, yeah. but without eye contact, not of social, you know, need okay. to be socially average or typical, they get to still participate fully. And so I find that Minecraft for Spectrum people tends to be very special because there's lots of Spectrum kids on Minecraft. On oh, Minecraft, that's interesting. Getting, getting indirect social massages from it because not quite as threatening as eye contact and being quirky face-to-face. -face. Yeah, sure. I mean, it was definitely so, the social side that got him in terms of Fortnite because yeah. he was fighting with his friends yeah. in a gang and they exactly. were joining forces. Yeah. Um, so, um, and in terms of you were saying that there is no, um, this was previously when we were talking, mm -hmm. there's no kind of perfect brain. But if you yeah. can if you can talk people through, because not everybody knows about the differences in terms of brainwave speed sure. and sure. theta delta gamma. Yeah. Can you... Can you talk through some kind of basic learning on that and mm. how you might want to shift things for performance? Yeah, let me give you a little primer of the different brain waves that we think about, and I'll give you a couple of examples of each, things that can bottleneck or go wrong for each, because it's quite varied. There's hundreds of things we could talk about. Brain waves are different groups of cells firing at a certain rate in time. A delta wave is a cluster of cells firing between two and four times per second, a burst. Okay. 30,000 neurons, a bunch of other cells fired together. A little, you know, little piston, a little CPU firing. And this is what we use in deep sleep. We have tons of these little columns firing that are firing all the time. Okay. And you're making delta waves all the time. But when you're deeply asleep and not dreaming, much more delta. When you're wide awake and talking to me, hopefully much less delta because okay. you aren't falling asleep. But if you weren't making delta right now, your heart and lungs wouldn't work. 
Okay. So like your brainstem does deep delta things to keep all the living things working. So is it associated with the parasympathetic nervous system, delta brainwaves? Not especially. Not especially. I mean, again, all brainwaves are associated with all things to some extent. Sympathetic and parasympathetic is more about the heart, um, uh, the brain-heart-gut axis, which is the vagus nerve. Mm-hmm. And that's activating different parts of the body, activating different parts of the body. If you step on a, uh, a hose and think it's a snake, your brain clenches up, makes your heart makes your heart pound and your belly clench because yeah. you interpret it top down, you're adding activation. If you run across town because you're excited and then see a cute person, you think they're extra cute because you transfer excitation up to your brain from your gut and your heart. Okay. So that whole system's kind of messy in terms of input output. Mm. So we've got delta, which delta. is slower. Yeah, and then you have theta just above that, or theta in London, I should say theta. Um, theta is about four per seven, four to seven cycles per second. Uh, you need theta for receptive attention, pulling memories out, noticing things, seeing patterns. For listening or not nope. so much? Just no. for just for the moment of, of like letting stuff in. Okay. Not for the concentration aspect. The like let the filter go so stuff comes in, that's theta. Or because it bubbles up from inside of you, that's theta. So people with high theta are poorly inhibited. Stuff pops into their mind, they fidget, they interrupt. Okay. So um, if delta's, I, I should give you back to delta for a second. If delta's too low, you don't sleep deeply at night and don't have good dreamless slow wave sleep. If delta's too high, you walk around all day long in brain fog. Theta, if it's too low, you can't access memory and creativity. Okay. If it's too high, you're a squirrel and everything pulls your attention, ADHD. Yeah. But for flow state, we are operating within theta. And alpha. And alpha together, mm-hmm. is it? It's the alpha theta. So, because I know, for example, like if you look at Mars, and for example, yeah. and a bit of beta. Yeah, yeah. So they take, or beta, as we like beta. to call it in That's London. Right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> for monks, for example, who are meditating, mm. they would mm. use green tea or L theanine, and you can take L theanine. Quite often, I'll use it with my own clients in terms of moderating some of the kind of high intense and crash effects of caffeine is yes. to have some L-theanine yep. with it or at bedtime sure. to sleep. So at that point, are you accessing more theta? It's it's designed to help more theta brain waves. The L-theanine releases GABA in the brain, the neurotransmitter GABA, and mm-hmm. GABA boosts alpha. Oh, GABA boosts mm-hmm. alpha. So you know the feeling you have two drinks in, that smooth, calm feeling you have? Yeah. That's GABA. You're feeling GABA when you feel okay. a little bit of alcohol in your system. Um, L-theanine also releases GABA, as do some nootropics. And mm-hmm. things that release GABA strongly are generally habit-forming. Yes. If you drink alcohol every day, even low amounts for a couple of months, in the absence of alcohol, you'll be hyper-aroused, not producing good GABA, shaky, nervous, can't fall asleep. If you do it for years, you, you get stuck in that. So but al- is that actually then changing the brainwave state? Absolutely. It is. So what, yeah. where, what are you accessing then when you're getting more release of GABA? Are you going into a more theta alpha? Alpha. Alpha, but you're releasing high amounts alpha. of alpha, oh, and you're suppressing alpha. beta, which are like the active frequency. Alpha is like a neutral frequency. Okay. A resting frequency. It's like you shift through neutral in and out of gears. You also rest in alpha. If you're not thinking too much, you're kind of drifting in alpha. Okay. When you kick into high gear, beta waves kick in. You think furiously or anxiously, whatever. Um, in uh, alcohol, let's say, you have increases of, al- of alpha because of the alcohol, mm-hmm. but then in the absence of alcohol, the beta spikes up and you're shaky, you're nervous. Which is why people commonly think, if I have a glass of wine, I'm going to sleep better, but actually it then disrupts sleep. Yeah, it disrupts the formation of deep sleep. Um, of course, alcohol, about two hours after you have a drink, you have aldehydes released in the system, which are quite toxic and cause mm. disruption of sleep. 
Um, yeah. You know, I, I had worked with a lot of, I used to work with a lot of clients with alcohol issues. I don't so much anymore, but I used to run an addiction center uh, with brain training. And I would routinely find people driven to my center who had one to three months of sobriety from a detox who showed brains that looked like they were chronically drinking their whole lives, even months later. Interesting. You know, hyper aroused beta waves, low amounts of delta and theta, unable to make the slow brain waves, what happens long term with alcohol. Too much fast brain wave and hyper connected, stuck in the fast brain waves, too little deltas and betas and alphas actually, okay. in the absence of alcohol. So you can't make the slow stuff nearly as much, too much of the fast brain waves, and you're stuck in this hyper focused, scattered, frenetic. You know, kind of mm. so in actual fact it's doing the opposite to relaxing yeah because it's actually building well chronically it does chronically yeah. it does because it's yes. replacing so the brain's issue. ability to relax on its own with an exogenous or external lever the brain forgets to do stuff if it's being done for it yes so, like anything like anything yeah so if you had somebody who was saying that they may well have detoxed given up alcohol for one to three months you can still see this Coming up, if they're a chronic see? drinker, I would see hyper coherence, over connectivity in the fast brain waves. Okay. Large amounts, you know, a couple of standard deviations more than average in the fast brain waves, beta waves, and fast beta waves. Mm -hmm. Low amounts of delta waves, theta waves, and alpha waves, which are slower brain waves, and decreased connectivity in the slow brain waves. So chaotic, low amounts of slow brain waves, high amounts of fast brain waves. Essentially, like an acquired almost ADHD meets anxiety kind of syndrome is what happens. That nervous, shaky, scattered, can't settle down, can't control their thoughts kind of person. Interesting. But then is it people as well who predominantly have more beta brainwaves that perhaps become more addicted to things like alcohol to get into a mm. more alpha state? Maybe. That's a very complicated question. Um, and not a well understood answer, but maybe um, the mm. drugs you choose do seem to relate to your starting place. Okay. Your, your elixir of choice, be it alcohol or cannabis or something harder, does tend to fit with what your brain started with. That being said, substances are just another form of learning, just like television. You can get addicted to anything sex, television, gambling, doesn't matter. Yeah, sure. And you're not going to stop eating, but you can be addicted to food. Mm -hmm. So with alcohol, I'm sort of have this mixed perspective of it's learning gone awry. You can relearn. I used to do an alcohol reintroduction uh, treatment with people. I mean, teach them to drink successfully and bring alcohol back in people's lives who had been sober for many years. In um, a moderate way, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a controlled way. So they were successful controlled drinkers at the end of the program, typically. Even people who had become alcoholics. Yes. Wow. We gave so them the choice. Would you like to cure. be moderate or would you like to be abstinent in this program? Goodness. And they could choose. And what we found didn't the success was not which program they were in, it's having the choice. Some clients would come in, their, their parents, their friends, their wife made them be in one program, or the courts did, one program. Not that successful. People who could choose, even choosing back and forth. I'm gonna do this abstinent and two weeks saying, you know, I kinda of think I want to do moderation. Or I'm gonna be moderate, and after a few weeks of feeling clear, you know, actually this abstinent stuff is great. The choice, the agency that gave them success, we found. That's very interesting. It didn't matter what the program was. And alcohol, again, very special. There's a, the opioid receptor is a pain kind of system in the body. There's a variant of the opioid receptor. I forget if it's the mu or the kappa one, but it's, it tends to have a couple of genetic variants. And one of them seems to make alcohol more yummy, more okay. rewarding. So about, I think, a third of people have a genetic variant where alcohol is just a little more interesting. It's not a huge effect, but you might be a little more predisposed to find it rewarding versus annoying or, or like some will have alcohol the first time like oh my god what is this why people drink this is horrible yeah. other folks are like oh my god wine is the elixir of the gods and they, they can never get enough of it 
the ability to sort of go, ooh, alcohol seems to be built in, and about a third of people or less have this sort of increased yumminess. It's slightly more rewarding. But you still have to practice learning. You don't get addicted the first one, two, no, ten times you do stuff. Yeah. And so you have to work on not just learning, but then the, in terms of addiction, the dysregulated behavior around the alcohol is really usually the problem. And what kind of, da- is it causing damage? So I know, mm. like, for example, aldehyde is actually made by the body itself in response to alcohol. Yep, yep. Is that damaging the brain? Or Absolutely. is it the alcohol itself? Both. 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 Okay. Alcohol is an incredible solvent, and the aldehydes are a protective event, as you said. Um, they both cause damage, yeah. Okay. Dramatic sometimes, yeah. So is there any, I mean, we see so many different things now in terms mm-hmm. of, but the prevailing um, answer seems to be that there are no benefits to alcohol, to alcohol at all. That seems to be the literature these days, that even a single drink once a week seems to have an increased total cause death across life. Mm-hmm. And no alcohol, you know, week to week seems to decrease total cause death. Yeah. And there's many things like that, and these are big effects. Alcohol goes back and forth. It's kind of a weak effect, you know, but... Uh, and it depends on cultures, too, and, and what drinking is, what else is in the culture. I mean, for years you thought that resveratrol and the sort of French red wine culture was the anti-aging component of French life, the French paradox. Why yeah. do they eat high-fat food and smoke cigarettes but live forever and have no cancer? doesn't make sense. Until you look at the fact, not just the red wine, the antioxidants, the fact that they have low-key lunches and go for a walk for an hour after their lunch typically and have and a this, sense of community if you look at like Dan Butner's work isn't it yeah it's so it's this holistic thing. piece mm. so you have to be a little cautious about going you know reaching for the one solution or the one thing that may make the difference because a people are variable and it's a complicated picture so when it comes against alcohol I think the only or any other substance I think the question to ask yourself is is your relationship with it okay or is your relationship with it a little dysregulated? Are you using it for the wrong reasons or out of, in an out of control way or as a stress response or a self-medication? Or using it, you know, humans have been altering brains since we've had brains. You know, seriously, we've been fermenting fruit juice and you know, tree bark and taking That's mushrooms true. and licking frogs and having experiences since before we had actual probably language. You know, we, even other creatures will seek alteration. If a fruit tree has rotted fruit, birds will find it and drink the the the, the fermented fruit to get drunk. And squirrels will too. Birds will get drunk. Yeah, wow. and, and squirrels will, and they'll actually like that stuff, and they will seek the altered states. So mammals like to alter their brains. We just love it. So I'm not too concerned about that. You know, I don't care if you're altering your brain through a hard workout, or smoking a joint, or having a glass of wine, or praying, or meditating. It's your brain. Go for it. But if your relationship with the alterant is out of your control, that's a problem. I don't care what the alternate is, I don't care if it's television or sex. If you're not in control of the relationship you have with the stimulus, that's a problem. Yes, I agree, yeah, sure. So. And in terms of for people who want to train their brains, I know you mm. do, you can actually, people can do this at home, they can buy they can. a machine and be trained in it, yeah. um, which is very powerful. Does How does this fit, for example, with your chronotype in terms of circadian mm. rhythm and do you need to be in alignment with that so say for example i know that as a mo- as a morning person mm. my best work on my creativity is then mm. um how much does this tie in with that in terms of i don't know that it matters a huge amount i think okay. if you you know work congruently with your rhythms things are often better a little bit and just generally across most interventions but um Neurofeedback changes your sleep regulation profoundly. So it doesn't really matter 
if you're a lark or an owl, if you're more creative in the morning, if you'd like to wake up refreshed in the morning and you don't now, you can just train that resource. If you want to have more stamina late in the night to work after your, you know, you'll see your starting a company after your full-time job, you know, more oomph in the afternoon because you're burnt out or in the evening, you can train that resource. So how would you do that? So let's talk about because yeah. lots of people yeah, sleep, sure, sure. have sleep issues. Mm -hmm. How can you use this to enhance your sleep and what kind of protocol and what do you commonly yeah. see as well? And yeah, there's a lot sure. of questions there in an insomnia. Sure. So when I look at your brain uh, at rest compared to the average person, your QEEG, mm -hmm. in sleep issues I'll see a few things. If I see a lot of eyes closed, beta in the middle of the head, then you're probably kind of active in your mind. I might say something like, oh, hey, this shows up and people can't fall asleep very easily. Busy mind, the onset of sleep is often hard to initiate. Mm -hmm. Or maybe I'll see some fast beta waves broadly in the middle of the head. I'll say, oh, you probably fall asleep okay, but you wake up a lot throughout the night. Your mind's gripping the world, not letting you fall into deep sleep. So sleep maintenance versus sleep onset. And I might see your delta waves running fast because you're never getting into dreamless sleep. And so I might tease apart and see which of these things are actually relevant. And you might say, oh, that's right, I wake up all night long. Okay, so sleep maintenance often comes along with some general anxiety. You also touch anxious? Oh, you are, okay. Are those important things to you? Great, let's work on that. And then I will exercise your beta waves to improve your sleep. So I'll measure your, for sleep maintenance, for instance, you often actually work on vigilance. It's odd, but you improve the anxiety in a deep sleep by making people more alert because you suppress the brain from falling asleep little micro sleeps all day long because you keep it awake and when you finally go to sleep you go hard so okay i would so find your brain these micro sleeps well you have little burnout little blips where your attention drifts or you have little your head dips you have little blips in your attention late in the day your brain's often in little bursts of sleep because you didn't get enough sleep the night before trying to push back okay. and claim that delta wave so you have little bursts of sleep events happening when you're awake and if you're chronically under rest, you're happening a lot. Is this when you're feeling like your head's dropping? That's, or you mean that's a very clear, even unconsciously. Okay. I mean, definitely when your head's dropping, you're having, you're actually falling asleep. You're entering stage one sleep. But micro-sleeps can happen all day long as oh, a wow. sense of brain fog or feeling sluggish or like you're wading through mud because you're burnt out. So if you see that in the brain and go, hey, is this sound relevant? And the person goes, oh, yeah, I'm kind of brain fog and kind of running slowly and kind of feeling always like I'm can't focus in the afternoon and, okay, well, this is potentially a sleep issue. I would then exercise to make you feel sharp and crisp with the expectation you would also sleep more deeply. So I measure the beta waves on the left side of your head mm -hmm. and the theta waves on the left side of your head. Okay. Whenever theta happened to dip a little bit on its own and beta climbed a little bit on its own for half a second, maybe a spaceship flies faster or a Pac-Man eats more dots or the music gets louder in the background. And then when the, when the brain moves in the wrong direction, the audio and the visuals go away. Moves in the right direction on its own, audio and visual resumes. The brain goes, hey, wait a minute. Whenever I move in a certain direction, stuff's happening. Ooh, I like stuff. And it starts to lean into whatever's producing the input. The same way your brain learned to use a tool when you picked up your first keyboard, your first baseball bat, it wasn't very comfortable. You had to learn to like do the biomechanics of controlling the environment through the technique, the, the mm -hmm. tool. The brain has no idea the Pac-Man in the screen isn't another tool it's trying to learn the rules for. So it's trying to figure out, if I do this, what happens? If I do that, what happens? But we're measuring things you can't control, your brain waves that happen in the last 100 milliseconds. So it's involuntary exercise. So we gently shape up or shape down brain waves, exercise them up or down. Very subtle experience, a little more awake or alert or calm or tired. And then tomorrow, you feel a little different because tomorrow your brain produces the brain waves 
that produce more input today. So we give you a little push like a personal trainer would and say tomorrow, how'd that feel? How was your sleep? So change your beta waves up and your theta down briefly for half an hour. After a couple of sessions, I would expect you to walk out of here feeling really crisp and really on and clear. Almost like you had coffee. And then a couple, hours later, <laughs> a couple hours later, it wears off. And then when you go to sleep, you sleep the deepest and the soundest you've ever slept. You wake amazing. up refreshed. And so I take the awake state and the sleep state and tear them apart and make them more and more awake when you're awake and more and more sleep when you're asleep. We beta wave training over time for vigilance and alertness and deep sleep. It's the same approach. How fascinating. I wasn't expecting you to go with that approach. It's, it's it counterintuitive. I'm it? not training the brain map. I'm not saying, oh, too much beta, train it down. Yeah. I'm saying, oh, too much beta. Oh, that means sleep maintenance and general anxiety. That might, likely means micro-sleeping. Therefore, we boost it a little more. To, you know, I'm, I'm not training to the data. This is not hot spot-tology. The goals mm-hmm. aren't to make you a normal or an average brain. The goal is to use the ways in which you're not typical to suggest how your brain might work, pull back and go, oh, this kind of brain might really enjoy this way of being exercised. And this, just to clarify, requires no cooperation, or None. at least conscious cooperation on the part of None. the person. None, exactly. This was discovered 52 years ago on cats. Cats are very bad instruction followers, right? Mm. So um, it also works on non-verbal people, people in coma, people who... People in a coma. Yeah, Margaret Ayer is one of the greats in the field who died a few years ago. Her, her job at the end of her life is flying from coma bed to coma bed to coma bed, working with people and taking them out of comas often. So um, I do a lot of work with you know uh, autistic people, some of, some of whom are cognitively impaired, uh, nonverbal. I also do a lot of work with nudgy teenagers who don't want to be in my office. Yeah. Whom parents made them show up. They sit on their phone the whole time and never look at the screen. And about three weeks in, they start taking the trash out, being asked once, and waking up in the morning, getting themselves dressed, and like coming home and doing their homework without being asked. It's very very strange. And parents come and say, "What's going on? My, my kids are hating." Um, that's amazing. So it's you can lovely. actually, so the, the teenager almost, but part of that is developmental. Sure, they need to. Yeah. But then, but then they also. Um, who was it that I heard talking about this a lot um, on a podcast about how children actually need to kind of rub up against their parents because they've got to leave yes, the pack to a degree. Between age twelve and fifteen, there's a special thing that happens. Usually on thirteen, yeah. where before age twelve. Your, your children will identify with the values and socialization that you brought them up with. Mm-hmm. From 13 to 15, 12 to 15, there's this a disidentification from parent and a re-identification with peer. Yes. So this is when you're, this is when you're kicking home the 12, 13, the leather jacket or a tattoo or like some weird behavior or like piercings. You're like, oh my God, what is going on? This is, you know, and they're usually finding the thing that is exactly opposite what they were raised on to embrace. Mm-hmm. It's, it's normal it's to find their own identity. They often find they often land somewhere in between later on, in terms of their uniqueness. Yeah. But they initially pushed back against what they know to be the history and the experience to find the new thing they can identify with. But this normal. training won't remove that. It just Not helps with the oppositional behavior, does it? Right. This gets the brain out of the way, so the kid can develop how they need to and want to. Okay. So it's like you know, you want to be a runner. You can be a runner, but you got a broken knee. It can be hard to run. Mm. You know how well you're a runner, if you're an Olympic runner or a jogger or, you know, you know, chase your dog, all different kind of running. But with a broken knee, that gets in the way. So neurofeedback will get rid of the physiological limits. You can then use your resources in whatever way you happen to want to develop them. 
It's very, very powerful. Um, I know you're short on time today, so I don't want to take too much, but I have another question. Sure. Um, in terms of techniques that people can use themselves yes. to get um, the kind of brainwave states they want, mm -hmm. um, how can you use the breath to access that? Mm. So there's a few things. Um, the breath is one of the big sort of built-in levers for controlling physiological activation or arousal. Um, and there's lots taught on breathwork. I'm not a breathwork mm. expert. I mean, go talk to Brian McKenzie or Wim Hof or one of the guys who's deep into this stuff, and you'll get a lot of lovely, you know, sort of strategies. The big thing I tell my clients when I'm doing breathwork instruction is all that really matters in terms of helping yourself change your arousal state is if your out breath is longer in time than your in breath, mm. you'll create a parasympathetic, a relaxation state. Yeah, if your in breath is longer than your out breath, you'll create a sympathetic activation. Just breathe out slowly. And the sympathetic activation is, is going to result in more beta. Yes, and more yeah. stress and more activation, more energy expenditure and less calmness, etc. Yeah. And when you have the long exhalation and you feel more relaxed, mm -hmm. are you moving more into kind of theta delta? Or not that long? You're dropping more excess beta, beta and you're probably balancing your ringers across the frequencies more. Oh, you're balancing you actually more. may even drop some slow frequencies that were excessive because you were feeling spacey or stressed. You know, like it, they tend to normalize a little bit across the range when you're in this sort of sympath uh, parasympathetic mode. Mm -hmm. In sympathetic, you have more extreme activation of brainwaves mm -hmm. in, in both directions, up and down, depending on the brain we're talking about. And then in a uh, parasympathetic, more rest and recovery mode, they're much more even across, you know, much more your baseline, if you will. Yeah, sure. And what's your thought on, um, I know like Dr. Palmer has done a ton of work on how gluten affects the brain. Yeah. Um, what's your view in terms of how gluten yeah, I mean, can affect it? Gluten, like other antinutrients, is a defense strategy of plants, so mm. we don't eat them. Gluten makes us digest food really slowly and gums up our inside, so the food isn't as palatable. Mm -hmm. That's why grains develop gluten to prevent animals from eating them, Yeah, basically. Um, humans are quite unique, and this is one of those things. Like I did a functional medicine screen about a year ago, and my functional medicine doc said, oh, great, you, you thought you had problems with gluten? You don't. You have problems with wheat. Gluten's fine, but wheat, stay away from it. Because he did some sensitivity things and found mm -hmm. that I can handle you know, the gliadin protein, no problem, but I can't handle wheat proteins wheat. that aren't gluten. That's a genetic thing. I'm you know, ethnically from you know, northeast uh, sort of uh, UK ancestrally, and my people ate not much wheat probably when they were mm -hmm. developing. And so I never developed the ability to really break down uh, wheats, let's say. I think that kind of stuff is really unique to people to people. I also think that human bodies and, and, and lifestyles are very adaptable. Humans are incredibly adaptable. Mm. I think you have to just sort of dial in what works for you and not be too orthorexic about things like mm. diet, not be too rigid. And I, I, I tell people, figure out what the rules are for you through science, through coaching, through trial and error. Figure out what your rules should be. Really figure them out. Take some time. And then make sure you're perfect about 80% of the time. Yeah. And throw caution to the wind the other 20%. I mean, I, we're, in the, we're in the biohacking space. We know tons of people who are hardcore fitness and hardcore keto. And some of those people walk by a donut shop and fall into a coma because they smelled some starch. You know, <laughs> they can't handle it. They have yeah. insulin so, you can't handle any spiking. You know, I used to be really, you know, low paleo years ago. Um, was not in nearly as good shape as I am now being paleo keto because mm -hmm. I couldn't, I didn't, have, I didn't have my insulin, couldn't handle starch. 
Now I can go low starch or high starch diets day to day and not notice any insulin changes because my insulin just ramps up and down appropriately. Okay. So it's about. So you're more insulin sensitive. Much more. Yeah. And now, like, I did alternate fasting for four months and, like, you know, every so often I'd skip it for a week and eat, like, burgers and fries and shakes. I would still lose body fat and gain muscle during the week of eating burgers, fries, and shakes because my insulin had been so profoundly sensitized to my muscles and liver after 20 years of not having, you know, a sort of standard American diet, you know, kind of like crappy mm. insulin. I fixed the sensitivity so profoundly that when I went off the, the rails of the diet, my body's like, you got it, no problem. We'll we'll keep we'll keep working. And you know, a year or two, a year or two ago, all the time it's like, oh, I shouldn't have ice cream, shouldn't have pizza, shouldn't have you know whatever. And when I did, I kind of felt lousy because mm-hmm. I had high insulin and yeah. chronic insulin responses. Now I don't have high insulin, so when I do it, my body responds to it, and it's a non-event. It's a non-event. So I think you have to, and this is very unique to people to people. And some people have ethical and other cultural reasons around food too. Mm. So I'm much more concerned about things like when you eat, not what you eat. For circadian okay. rhythm, let's say. Mm-hmm. Like the biggest driver we have for circadian is not light, it's when you eat. So yeah. you have to not eat at the end of the day to keep your circadian rhythm from stretching. It's the number one rule for circadian stuff. It's much more important than light. And I mean, I'm a heretic in the biohacking world for saying that light doesn't matter that much, but um, I'm, I care much more about you fasting for three or four hours in the evening than putting on any blue blocking glasses. Yeah. I really do. Three or four hours before sleeping, you shouldn't yeah. be eating anything. Nothing, yeah. And yet a lot of people kind of will have something right up until bedtime. Most people who are in modern societies and cultures will start eating when they wake up and stop eating right before bed. They have mm. 16 plus hours of eating time. Mm. And we really need to have more like, well, for men, you know, four to 10 hours of eating. And for women, like six to 12 hours of eating. Women can't compress their cycle quite as much of eating without suppressing hormones. Women's circadian rhythm is also shorter by about an hour. So you're much more sensitive than men are to destroying your circadian rhythm by eating at the end of the day. So we're also more sensitive then to things like jet lag. Uh, Perhaps in one direction. Yeah. 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 But... You know, women are also more balanced in their brains. They tend to react to stressors better. They, their brains tend to change a little faster under certain things. Men are much more biased to one sort of brain side and to you know, more activation and things. Men are like the the new model where things weren't quite worked out yet. And women are like the default mode where everything had been perfectly worked out. So women are much better bet. This is true across all species. Female, you define female based on the bigger size of the genetic material. That's the only definition of female and male across species. Okay. So if they got bigger genes in the, in the packet, they're a female. doesn't matter if it's sperm or egg. The egg is defined by what's bigger in the creature, not, okay. not anything else. How much does it have more genes in it? It's the egg. Fewer okay. genes in it, it's the sperm. That's it. So the, the female of the creature, the female spe- of the species has a very strong investment in a nice, genetic, well-understood package. And the male's like an elaboration to see if it works. <laughs> and during developmental stress, like if, if any creature in in utero development has major stressors and they start developing male, they, they default back and go with female again. Happens much, much more easily in non-human creatures. The environment's stressful, like you put some chemicals in the environment, and all the little boy fish turn to female fish before they're born, because it's a much better bet for genetic material for the environment to say, "Oh, let's go make some girls, not boys," because boys are weird and we don't we're not sure what's going to happen with the genetics. But girls, we understand things work. And so girl creatures are created by default. Boy creatures are kind of a weird, like, you know, interpretation of the, of the default plan that doesn't always work the same way. But that leads to some greater sensitivity, you were saying, in circadian rhythm. But then also 
some more stability. Mm, exactly. Well, it's a slightly shorter rhythm. Men have, in general, and people are quite variable, but men yeah. have about an hour longer rhythm than women do. What that means is at the end of your rhythm, like let's say it's 10 p.m., a man and a woman are not at the same place in their circadian rhythm at 10 p.m. You're at the end of yours, I'm almost at the end of mine. So if I eat a little bit, it it's not a signal at the end of the rhythm the same way as yours is. And so could um, men get away with less sleep better than women as I'm a result sleep, of that? But maybe they can get away with eating later at night without disrupting oh, okay. their circadian rhythm. Okay. And sleep's very different person to person. Some people can get away with, you know, usually the range is like about six and a half to eight and a half hours is the normal range. Um, it's really unusual to have a brain that can get away with less than six and a half hours. People mm. say they do, but they're not actually doing it. They're, they're performing very poorly. You see mm. issues that you map their brains. Humans, modern humans, are chronically fairly sleep deprived. So, and um, I know we were speaking on uh, at the dinner on Friday night about my years as a corporate lawyer mm-hmm. and how much I kind of trashed my sleep. Yeah, um, and that will have had a profound impact. And it may on my still brain. be something you can see in your brain now. Okay, but also you've had major impacts to your body and brain. You've had some kids. Yeah, you've had a lot of massive hormonal cycling. Every time you had a kid some of the developing DNA got deposited back in your body too. So you're carrying traces of other foreign DNA and you weren't born with. I did not know that. Yeah. So some of some of the DNA that's going to the child comes back mm. into my yeah. every mother's body. Yeah. So How does that work? It's, it's like a leech effect that creates creating your body ends up being oh, incorporated. I see, in the because body. it's there. How interesting. So it's not it's not a complete sealed off pattern, I don't think. Yeah. So Is you've it? actually got some then of well there's yeah, there's a unity then of man and woman because you are now getting a little bit of your partner. Yeah. The, women, well, the woman yeah. is, yeah. but the man is this not. This is why um, dog breeders won't let you have a purebred after they've sired a non-purebred. Okay. Because from then on, the genetics are tainted in theory. Tainted. They're changed. Now, okay. it's animals, of course, but the same thing does apply in humans. Having a child changes your brain, hormonally, genetically, and you have a feedback effect from the hormones and genes in the child. So it changes you a lot, and it's a big hit to your body. It's a massive, the biggest expenditure your body will ever do is produce a child mm. in terms of metabolic you know, output in a concentrated way. It's a, it's a hugely you know, expensive thing to do for your body. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it takes a lot. And what are your thoughts in terms of like, I have personal experience of it, mm. you know, suffered uh, very badly with postnatal depression, mm, mm. and it got worse each time. How does, why does pregnancy affect the brain in some women? more than others it was unexpected for me never thought it would happen I don't know Um, the short answer but my hunch is that you probably were just more predisposed to being depressed okay so there's almost a predisposition yeah and then the hormonal shift you know post uh, uh, child dropped you further than the average person and you didn't have the resilience and buoyancy of mood and stability that you might have had pre-child with the added hit of the hormonal shifts. Yeah, and lack of sleep must pay a part. So Massive part. If you've got a baby that, like I had, they have terrible reflux, don't sleep, that's going to play a big part on the of brain, course. right? It's going to really keep you stuck in that mode. Um, if you have lots of kids in short succession, you're still depressed in the first one, you have another hit to the body. I mean, the brain doesn't really have homeostasis. I hate that word. It's homeodynamic. It okay. finds a range within which to live. Like, body temperature is not... Uh, I don't know what it is in, in Celsius, but in Fahrenheit it's 98.6. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's not. It's around 36 and a half to 37. Yeah, but it's not. If you measure your temperature every hour, it oscillates by over a full degree every 24 hours. It's an oscillatory process. Mm. It's, and it's not because the body... It's a rhythm, isn't it? It is. It's not because the body can't hold it at one place. 
it's because there's some reason that it must oscillate. So we, there's no such thing as homeostasis in the body. There's dynamic range and ranging within things. This is true like insulin, cortisol, everything. If it ranges, it's fine. If it goes up and stays up, goes down and stays down, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. So dynamic range is really, really important. You probably lost dynamic range of some okay. of the things you have to use to regulate your mood, your stress, because it pushed so far to one side, so thoroughly and held there by all the stressors and developmental expenditures that you couldn't regulate back into your flexible range. I mean, very abstract, but I don't understand exactly why yeah, it happens. But we know that that's necessary. Yeah, we, we, we know ranging, like cortisol goes up and stays up, kills your hippocampus, depression happens. That's the major mechanism of stress-driven depression. Oh, interesting. It's so that's kind of when people get kind of burnout from work. Exactly. Cortisol decreases hippocampal high. plasticity, makes you depressed. Anything that lifts depression does so by raising plasticity. Mm. I remember you saying that. SSRIs aren't... It's not a serotonin effect lifting depression. It's a downstream effect on BDNF and hippocampus, a plasticity effect in the hippocampus that lifts depression. It's true if you're in therapy or an SSRI or going for a walk and having you know, a spiritual experience. Mm. Anything that lifts depression does so by causing more changeability in the brain. And less changeability leads to death and depression. And that's why exercise, what I find, is so powerful because that I will have a way more productive day if absolutely. I've exercised first thing. Yeah. Because Frank's that stimulates BDNF, BDNF Absolutely. And it? you know what? If you're doing a Peloton thing, like watching a screen with scenery traveling by you, even more BDNF. BDNF gets really cranked up by exploring environments. Well, so if you're on a bike and, and you're saying doing a simulated, mm -hmm. watching anything or watching like scenery. pretending you're on a cycle? Scenery. Yeah, the ladder. Traveling oh. somewhere. Your brain loves to travel. You have specific cells in the hippocampus called place cells. They're like, ooh, haven't been here before? We haven't? Let's check it out. How And they learn the environment. They, they fire, oh, I've been here before. I haven't been there before. And they learn to encode environment, include place. Okay. And if you have lots of novel places you have massive plasticity shifts. So an antidepressant thing would be exploring a novel environment, like going for a walk in a new city would be an antidepressant driven of driving effect. And that stimulates BDNF. That's Absolutely. very interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. We've like ranged the field here. We have, we've gone like we've dotted everywhere. Um, so what would you say, before I ask you where people can find out mm. more about you, what are the top three things that people can do mm -hmm. to look after their brains. Wow. Number one, don't eat for three to four hours before bed. Mm -hmm. If you need um, something, like a ritual or a flavor, have some herbal tea. Yeah. I tell all my clients that, funnily mm -hmm. enough, actually. Because rituals are lovely, you bed. know? But no caffeine, obviously. Yeah. Um, number two, get up early. For everybody? Yeah. Because okay, um, the end of your day is very weekly in training. The beginning of your day is strongly in training for circadian rhythm. Also, for, for light, the only light that really matters for circadian is the first hour after dawn. There's a special nucleus behind the eyes, above the optic nerve, called the suprachiasmatic nucleus that watches the temperature of light around you mm -hmm. in the retina. And it's specifically triggered by a frequency of light, a color of light in the air for the first hour after dawn, the sun's low on the horizon. It's saying, hey, it's dawn. When the sun's a little higher, that frequency is not there anymore. You can't train to the morning. Now, this is difficult, this one, before mm -hmm. you go on to the third, for people in the northern hemisphere, in the UK, but more particularly in Scandinavia. Absolutely. Because, you know, it's 4 a.m., that means waking up in summer. Well, But now yeah. it's getting later, and I know, for example, by the time we move the clocks in October, then to get that light, well, I yeah. suppose you could still get up before it, right? But you yeah. want people to see it You don't it want to get up after it is the issue. You don't want to get two hours after dawn because okay. you'll have none of that. And you're right, in, in you know, Sweden and Norway and things, Swing. especially in the north, 
you know, in the fall through winter, it barely gets light up in the Arctic Circle, and, the, and you're going to have a significant effect. And there is increased depression, is, increased yeah. maladaptive coping, like alcoholism, mm. as you go up in, you know, up in the Arctic Circle. If people, if you poorly entrain, you'll have other issues, high cortisol, high stress, etc. So there's tricks. You can do some light things, but I would simulate dawn. So with a red light, for example? With a blue light in the morning. Okay. It's blue color that causes this to happen in the morning. But when the sun is rising, there is blue. some red. It's but it, all but it, blue. But, but it's the blue light in the morning. You can't see oh, it. Oh, it's for the blue light that but you But it's want the blue light that gets in the, the supercosmic okay. nucleus and causes the timing. That's why you want to avoid blue light late in the day. But yeah, of course. It's a very weak effect, though. It's the morning blue light you need. I don't care about evening blue light. So again, don't eat before bed. Keep your, in the morning time, it's actually about keeping your wake time consistent. I don't care yes. when you go to bed. I care when you wake up. But the, what you're saying is then, say people have had a dinner party mm. and they don't go to bed till maybe one o'clock in the morning, friends have left late. If their wake-up time is 5.30, get then they hours. still need Seven to get up days at 5.30. Only, yeah, plus or minus half an hour. But then you might have a nap. Oh, plus or minus half an hour yeah, is okay. It's fine. Don't be orthorexic about it. But, you know, like, I want you, your body understands waking time is a very special thing. We're supposed yeah. to wake up and not eat and go hunt for food. Mm. So don't eat at the either side of your day. I think most biohackers do it wrong. Mm-hmm. They push back their first meal till noon, they eat until 8 p.m. That's wrong. You so should. what would you say are the optimal hours to eat? After a few hours, you, you start, don't eat for a few hours after you get up. Oh, the third one, just to tie it in here, is exercise in the morning before you eat. Strong Fasted workout. Strong. So okay. circadian and trainer. So three things, no eating before bed, no eating first thing in the morning, and exercise before you eat. Those are the three biggest things you could do. Those are all circadian reinforcers, if you will. And... But are these going to, because these um, help with your circadian rhythm. It's a bit like when you're traveling. I will say to people, don't eat until you're in the new time zone and your first meal is at the time yeah, of the new time the zone. Biggest, yeah. But how is this, your circadian rhythm affects your mental it performance does. and your brain? All the time. And many of us are walking around awake during the day with our brains thinking it's nighttime. Because we don't have a 24 hour cycle. It has to get resynchronized to the earth every 24 hours. When the sun comes up, it resynchronizes. And if you live in a cave, it starts to drift past the Earth's cycle, and you free run at your normal cycle. And if you're living with signals that don't make sense to your brain, light and things getting out of whack, then you're giving your brain signals about it being daytime, it's nighttime, and nighttime, it's daytime, and you stop having cortisol and ghrelin and insulin, all slightly growth hormone, cycling yeah. the right way, and you get depressed and anxious and tired, and your skin looks lousy, and you know you gain weight. The best thing for losing weight is sleeping the right time. Yeah, I would say you can sleep yourself then. You absolutely can. Yeah. And you can sleep muscles on. If you aren't getting enough sleep as an athlete, you have one more hour of sleep, you'll gain more muscle mass. Dramatically more. One more hour, or is it that first hour? It's the first hormone beginning, yeah. is released, isn't it, after about 90 yeah, minutes? Yeah, absolutely. Unless you go into bed with some insulin in your system. And then there's no release. Then there's no release. And if you're north of 40, that's the only growth hormone you're getting is that, that giant pulse 90 minutes in. Yeah, so if you want to gain muscle, that's super important. You have to go to bed with an empty stomach and let your insulin drop and let your growth hormone surge an hour and a half into bed or into sleep. That'll drag you into deep sleep, delta. And then five hours later, have a rebound of cortisol to wake you up feeling refreshed and suppress the graylands. You aren't hungry. So the rule of thumb is go to bed a little hungry, wake up refreshed and feeling full. Go to bed full, wake up hungry and tired. Yeah, absolutely. That's funny. I've noticed that. Mm. If you are eating late with friends, you wake up hungry. You're yeah. crazy. Yeah. So... These are easy things to do. These are yeah, a lot of easy. behaviors. Everyone can do them. And here's the thing. I'm not, this is like a, I'm not saying what is the truth. I'm saying what is likely to work for you. So I want you people to try this and see what works. I could be wrong for you. For most of us, this is going to work pretty well, though.
Yeah, I agree. And I actually see it on my aura when I do the right things. Mm -hmm. um, alcohol, for example, I'll notice that my pulse will be 10 beats higher yeah. if I've had even one drink. Yeah. Yeah. I, don't, I don't drink a lot, so just one drink, it will yeah, raise it. Um, yeah. yeah, it's interesting. And also, you get less REM sleep. Yes, much so, less perhaps. Yeah. Um, so where this was fascinating. Thank you. And thank you so much for sharing this. Um, we are in LMS Wellness we are in, in London, LMS, which is absolutely. going to be a brand new clinic for the Peak Brain Institute here. Yes, um, I'm partnering with Dr. Mo Eniat, um, and he, of course, uh, he and his sister have uh, LMS here, which is a health optimization, so exclusive, high-end, everything, hyperbaric, skin, IVs, IV laser, I did an IV laser with them last week, that was crazy. Um, having lasers put into your veins. Yes, um, I was just hearing about oh, that's that. Amazing. It's really Which interesting. helps with the IV. All kinds of things, yeah. yeah, I suppose. I don't know enough about it, but I it felt really felt incredibly uh, energetic. So we'll see what happens. But um, so uh, they've had a really high-end uh, wellness optimization practice here for a few years. And I've been working with Dr. Mo for a couple of years, deciding how we can bring it to London. And so as of now, you can get your brains mapped at LMS. And then I work with you remotely to help you understand what the resources are doing, give you some options, and we can get you training your own brain remotely at home. We can send you equipment and have you do it on your own. So, Which is absolutely amazing. Thanks. Well, um, we have offices all over the, all over the world. Um, some of these little satellites to get brain naps done. Yeah. Some are big training centers with a gym where you walk in and train your brain a few times a week and with the hardware and software. Um, and you're expanding quickly. And we're expanding. Yeah. yeah, we have some physical offices, three in the US, in uh, Los Angeles, Costa Mesa, St. Louis. Um, a couple of these hubs now in Europe, one in Malmö, Sweden, um, and then there's a couple other locations we're opening up as well over the next year or so. So. And as you were saying, this is for a range of people, people who really want the edge on performance, mm. right through to children or teenagers who are having problems with ADHD. Yeah, it only works, exactly. It only works if you have a brain. That's the only requirement. And, and a goal. Because I'm not your doctor. I'm not here to tell what's wrong with you. I'm here to help you get your goals accomplished. Yeah. So, and that's the, that's the one big difference between peak brain and the other 10,000 practitioners in the world. Everyone else is a therapist of some sort. Mm -hmm. Peak, or for the most part, peak brain is a, it's your, it's your science and gym center to do what you want to do with your brain. And we help you learn how to use it and execute on tools. It's not about what's right or wrong with you. It's about what your goals are. So that's the biggest, the one big difference between peak brain's neurofeedback and everyone else is it's about executing on all the things you want to yeah. do, not treating you, not doing yeah. stuff to you. I noticed that that's the real distinguishing factor is working with people. Mm. As you say, it's like, well, this is what we've noticed. Is this important? If so, for what reason? And do you want to work on it? Right. If you do, let's fix it, right. as you were saying, which I think is amazing. Um, so I will link to all the links in the show Great. notes, but people can find you. It's the Peak Brain Institute. Peak Brain LA is the Peak socials, uh, okay. or peakbraininstitute.com. And then I'm Andrew Hill, PhD, all over socials. So um, check us out, Peak Brain LA, or Andrew Hill, PhD, for socials. Let us know your brain questions. Um, and then I speak at a lot of conferences and travel the world, so maybe you can you know, sit down and talk to me face to face, of course. Yeah. Um, and I do travel between all the offices, so I am in London, Malmo, St. Louis, LA, at least a couple times a year in all the locations. So we can work directly together if people are interested, or I have a huge team of amazing brain coaches I've trained up personally who work the peak brain way and helping you optimize your brain performance. And who can work with people in their homes remotely, as you were saying, Absolutely. which is amazing. Yeah, we do a lot of work remotely in homes, either concierge going to your home and doing stuff for you, or clients buy their own equipment and become their own brain hackers, and we teach them how to do it and keep them on that path of chasing goals. I quite want to become a brain hacker. There you go. Sounds good to me. Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Remember to review and subscribe. 
You can grab the show notes, the resources, and highlights of everything Angela mentioned over at AngelaFosterPerformance.com. You can also snatch up plenty of other goodies, including the highly helpful Angela Recommends page, which is a list of everything she personally recommends to optimize your mind, body, and lifestyle. 